Um, let me start out by asking you guys a question, um, especially you younger guys. Some of you guys may not know the answer to this. I, I didn't. I learned it just recently. Uh, how many of you guys think that if you have a compass, um, you know, that you, and you're navigating, right, that you will end up, if you follow the end, you will end up on the northernmost part of the world? Anybody think that? Nobody thinks that? I'm the only one? Man, I'm dumb. Uh, <laughs> you know, I, I had always thought that if I were to get a compass and follow it, follow the end, follow it north as far as I could, that it would lead me to the geographical top of the world. And I guess I wouldn't be too surprised if there were a lot of other people out there uh, who were as misguided and, and dumb as me. But uh, <laughs> the truth is that if you were to take a compass and follow it as far north as it would take you, uh, as far north as you could possibly go with it until it suddenly switched to S uh, because you'd passed it, the truth is that you would actually be hundreds and hundreds of miles away from the geographical top of the world. And if you're wondering why that is, apparently nobody in here is. I was the only one who would have been. Um, But that's because the magnetic uh, field that lies under the Earth's surface at the North Pole uh, is constantly drifting. It isn't steady. It's always moving around. And so in 2002, uh, the magnetic north, which is where your your compass would take you, uh, and the true north were about 590 miles apart. And you might be thinking, well, that's not that big of a difference in the big picture. I mean, it's thousands of miles around, uh, around the Earth, so, you know, what's 590 miles? Uh, that might not seem like a big deal in the big picture, but if you wanted to get to Seattle and you ended up somewhere in the desert 90 miles north of Bo- or west of Boise, east of Boise, that's what's farthest away, uh, that would seem like a significant difference. It's, it's very different between here and, uh, that's probably getting toward uh, Wyoming. It's a big difference. Uh, Imagine being without food and water as you're hiking through the mountains of Northern California and you know where the next town is because your map tells you exactly where it is and you forget to adjust 18 degrees, which is the adjustment that you would have to make to get to that town. Instead, you end up 18 degrees off. It's a big difference. You see, our maps are designed with what you would call a true north. Um, That is, they aren't based on the varying, the, the changing location of the magnetic north. They're based on a geographical point that is constant and unchanging. Um, And and uh, and that's what's referred to as the true north. And if you don't have a true north, of course, uh, you you just have a magnetic north, then the direction that the compass leads you will be different. It'll be maybe even just slightly different, but it will be different. It'll lead you somewhere different today than it might lead you tomorrow, even just slightly. And if you don't have a true north, guess what? You don't have a true south, east, or west either. And all those things are hinging on the true north. If you don't have a true north, man, everything just becomes relative. So to navigate as accurately as possible, you need a true north, a point that is unchanging and steady. Now, speaking of unchanging, the Reformation rallied around five points, five unchanging principles upon which the Christian life was supposed to be lived, or is supposed to be lived. It's a set of principles commonly referred to as the five solas. Uh, Sola is the Latin word for only or alone. Uh, So there are these five principles commonly referred to as the five solas of the Reformation. We are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, Scripture is the sole authority. Scripture alone has the authority to reveal and teach these things. And as such, Scripture has ultimate authority in our lives. 
And these are all fundamental truths. These are all a true north for the Christian faith, but none of them means anything if we don't understand the significance of soli deo gloria, living for the glory of God alone. Soli deo gloria is the the Latin phrase for it. Here's the thing. If it's not anchored, if your faith isn't anchored in living for for the glory of God alone, then you can waffle on the other points. Because it's not all for God. I mean, there's some give and take if it's not all for God. So it starts, it's rooted, it's anchored in living for the glory of God alone. If you've ever wondered how a person or or a church gets off course and ends up affirming, accepting, and celebrating sin, there you go. It's because they've lost the true north. They've lost focus. They've lost sight of these five solas of the Reformation. A church or a person that exists for anything other than the glory of God alone will end up just going along with the culture, just going along with the the floating, unsteady, constantly changing norms of the culture and what the society or the culture determines, determines as the church or the person's purpose that's what it turns out to be. And so they end up being something other than they were created for, whether it's a person or a church. They end up becoming something else, missing the target destination and missing it badly, all because they lost sight of the churches or the person's true purposes, the true north. <coughs> now, before we start talking about God's glory, some of you might be asking, well, what exactly is God's glory? And this is a really good question. And it's kind of funny because we we talk about God's glory so much, and yet if you were to to ask 10 different very educated theologians, even even completely conservative theologians that we agree with, uh, they might all have slightly different answers. So when we're asking uh, what exactly is God's glory, it might be easier to start with what it is not. Uh, at least not in, in this particular sense. It's not the Shekinah glory. The Shekinah glory is, is, is a representation of God's glory. But God is not confined in the Shekinah glory. Now, remember, the Shekinah glory was a visual, uh, physical cloud that represented the presence of God in the, the Old Testament as he was leading, for example, as he was leading um, the Israelites out of Egypt. It was the, the visual cloud that came upon the shepherds to announce the birth of Christ in Luke chapter 2, verse 9. It was the visual cloud that Jesus ascended to in the first chapter of Acts. That's the Shekinah glory. Uh, We're not speaking strictly about the Shekinah glory, though. We're speaking a little bit more broadly when we're talking about the glory of God. Uh, His glory also shouldn't be confused with just his his brute power, his his almightiness, uh, his omnipotence. Uh, Although his power, his, his awesome power, is definitely a part of his glory. It's a smaller part of the whole spectrum. If God was most glorified by demonstrations of, of brute force, you know, he would be most glorified by determining every single event that happens in the universe, including the words that I'm speaking right now. And there would be no freedom at all because God would be most glorified by determining every single event. Um, and and I, that's why I say, you know, that's not exactly what God's glory is, although his power is uh, part of his glory. Um, but God is not a master puppeteer. Um, the simplest working definition of God's glory is that it refers to his ultimate awesomeness as revealed in his works in creation, which are done in conjunction with his nature. 
Don't write that down. That's, I, I know. <laughs> I say that's the simple definition. We're going to narrow that down just a little bit. It's the outflowing of the inner workings of the Trinity itself. It's the revelation, the, the, the outpouring of his loving kindness, his righteousness, his power, his majesty, things like that. In Psalm chapter 19, verse 1, the psalmist writes, the heavens declare the glory of God. And a lot of well-meaning apologists, and apologists is somebody who, you know, maybe they'll go up and talk to an atheist and try to convince them that, um, that God exists, or, uh, they'll, you know, they, they, they defend Christianity, basically. And a lot of well-meaning apologists uh, take this verse to mean that the, heavens, that the heavens provide the evidence of God's existence. And, and while that might be true to an extent, I don't think that's what the psalmist is saying here. Uh, I think that's a little bit of a misinterpretation. You see, when, when this verse was written... Everyone almost believed that there was some kind of God. Uh, it was, the question wasn't, is there a God? The question was, which God is supreme? Which God created everything? Which God is the one true God? That was really the question. And so what the psalmist is telling us here is that the earth, the universe, and all of creation tell us about God's glory. They tell us about his, his majesty, his splendor, his beauty, his power, his personhood, they reveal the supremacy of Yahweh. That's what, the, that's what I think the psalmist is trying to say there. And we, almost, we also might say that God's glory is the revelation or the display of his holiness. Uh, as Isaiah uh, stood in the presence of the heavens, the angels cried out, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his... And if this was the first time that you had read that verse, you might look at this, just this part, without seeing what the final word is. You might look at this, uh, this verse and say, oh, his holiness. The whole earth is full of his holiness because that's what the angels are saying. They're proclaiming his holiness and they're saying the whole earth is full of his glory. The whole earth is full of his glory. And so thus it seems that there is this connection, a necessary connection between God's holiness and his glory. So glory is, when we're talking about the glory of God, we're talking about the intangible thing that makes something or someone worthy of praise, worthy of devotion, worthy of being loved. And so with that said, God's glory is really, really serious business. Around 3,000 years ago, a guy named David was reflecting on the power and the dominion of God. And he wrote this. He said in Psalm chapter 24, verse 1, The earth is the Lord's and all it contains. The earth is the Lord and all it contains, the world and those who dwell in it. So how foolish would it be, how foolish would we have to be to see this and believe that we have the rights to call the shots, that we have some kind of privilege that we should be able to get a piece of the glory for ourselves. If there's any question about whether we belong to ourselves or whether we belong to God, this one verse, this one verse answers that question and leaves absolutely no room for negotiation. Everything in the earth, including ourselves, including everything, every nanoparticle belongs to God. Everything. It's all his and it's all for his glory. In the next verse, David tells us why it's all rightfully God's, telling us that it's because God created it all. 
Every nanoparticle, everyone recognizes that if you make something, you rightfully own it. Uh, I was at a garage sale a few weeks ago, and there was a, a fight that almost broke out, uh, which I missed, but Christina's like, did you see that as we're walking away? Uh, I was concentrating on something else, but uh, somebody had a sign that was pointing traffic, directing traffic to their house, and another guy pulls up and says, where did you get those signs? I made those signs. And the reason he knew that he made those signs was because he cut them himself out of wood, and he cut them in a specific way, so when he saw them, it was apparent to him, it was obvious to him, that those were his boards. See, we all recognize that if we make something, the person who makes something has full and rightful ownership of it. This verse is telling us God made everything, and so everything belongs to God. And so in light of that truth, David begins to wonder, who has the right to stand before God? If everything belongs to God, who has the right to stand in his presence? Who has the right to join him in heaven? That's what he asks in verse 3. And the answer is revealed in the next two verses where he writes, he who has clean hands and a pure heart. We were just studying that in James. Uh, Who has not lifted up his soul to falsehood and has not sworn deceitfully. He shall receive a blessing from the Lord and righteousness from the God of his salvation. Now this this is really a humbling reality. As righteous as we like to pretend like we are, as righteous as we naturally think that we are, This verse is telling us that the God of our salvation has to give us his righteousness. And he's going to bless us with that so that we can spend eternity in his presence. The person who receives this blessing is one who has clean hands and a pure heart. And so thus David says in verse 6, This is the generation of those who seek him, who seek your face, even Jacob. Selah. And these wonderful truths, these amazing truths ought to really cause us to feel this immense sense of awe. It's just too big, too great, too awesome for us to wrap our minds around. And I'm sure that's what, uh, what was going on in David's heart as he wrote this stuff. And that's why he ended the section of this psalm with a selah, which essentially means, uh, think about this. Really think about this. Meditate on it. Let, it. let it sink in. Let it penetrate your heart. And so listen to what he follows that up with. Psalm 24, verses 7 to 10. He writes, Lift up your heads, O gates, and be lifted up, O ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. Who is the King of glory? The Lord strong and mighty. The Lord mighty in battle. Lift up your heads, O gates, and lift them up, O ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. Who is this King of glory? The Lord of hosts. He is the King of glory. Selah. Five times, if you're you're repeating something that much, you want to really emphasize what it is you're repeating. And so five times in this section of the psalm, God is referred to as the king of glory. Now, in our culture, in American culture, we might not immediately uh, recognize the implication of this because we don't have kings. But what we need to understand is that in David's time, if someone was a king, they had complete and unquestioned authority and dominion over the land and everything in the land. So to question, his, to, uh, to question the king's dominion or his authority, uh, his ownership of the land was basically treason. It was an act of war. That's why David didn't kill King Saul when he had the chance. He recognized 
You know, if, if God doesn't want Saul in the picture, if God doesn't want Saul here, God could take Saul in, in a heartbeat. I don't want to interfere with God's plan. So he didn't question it. He didn't question the fact that Saul was king for a season and that God had to be teaching David something through this time when David is being chased across the land by the king. So when David refers to the Lord as the king of glory, five times, he's saying that all glory belongs to God, all of it. That's the first thing. That's the first principle that I want us to grasp when we're talking about the glory of God. It's entirely his. It's entirely his dominion. No questions asked. None of it belongs to me. None of it belongs to you or anyone else. It all belongs to God. If God is the rightful owner of all glory, then none of it belongs to me and none of it belongs to anyone else either. It's all God's. It's not soli mio gloria. It's soli deo gloria. It's all God's glory. And this isn't just some you know, cheap, generic slogan. Like, you know, you, you hear companies use the same slogan for, you know, 20 years, 30 years, and finally, you know, you, you just kind of grow numb to it. And, you know, oh, they just say it because that's their slogan. No, this isn't just a cheap and generic slogan that we, you know, that we affirm or that we say because that's what we're supposed to do. No, we affirm this because that's our purpose. Our purpose is to glorify God. We affirm this because if we don't give all the glory to God, it means we're trying to steal some of it for ourselves. We affirm this because if we don't give uh, all the glory to God, we're trying to keep it as our own, as if we're keeping some for ourselves. And if we do that, if we're allowed to do that, then man, it is a free-for-all. We can just do whatever we want. We can believe whatever we want because we've got some of the glory. No, it's all God's. Now think about this for just a second. Why do people sin? Why do believers sin? Why do unbelievers sin? It's the same reason. I mean, even, even good, solid, lifelong followers of Jesus fall into sin from time to time. But why? I'd say that it's because we so easily lose sight of the fact that our purpose is to live for this principle, for the glory of God alone. The Lord is the King of glory, meaning he rightfully owns it all. And it's vital that we not lose sight of that, that we keep that at the front of our minds at all times. The person who lives for their own glory, stealing or trying to steal even a nanoparticle of God's glory, that's the word today, nanoparticle, that person, <laughs> that person will have no problem following the relativity, the relative standards of the culture rather than following Christ. And that's why repentance is so important. It's essentially confessing to God that we lost sight of our purpose and we tried to take some of his glory for ourselves and we're ready to return it to its rightful owner. That's what confession and repentance is. And of course, God is willing to forgive. God is always willing to forgive, but he wants us to be serious about repentance. You know, if one of your kids uh, is constantly speaking rude to you, like all the time speaking rude to you, and after every episode, they say, I'm, I'm sorry, Mommy, or, you know, I'm sorry, Daddy. At what point do you say, you know what, if, if you're really sorry, you'd stop doing it. You know what I mean? I see all the parents smiling and looking at their kids. Yeah, exactly. That's, it. that's the way it is. And that's the way it works with repentance as well. That's the way it works with God as well. God calls the shots because the glory is all his. The second thing that we need to understand about God's glory is that he is jealous for it and he has zeal about it. He's jealous for it and zealous about it. 
Remember not to confuse jealousy, by the way. Don't confuse jealousy with coveting. Uh, If you're jealous for something, it means you want what is rightfully yours, whereas coveting is wanting something that is not rightfully yours. So God is not covetous for glory because the glory is all his. He is jealous for glory because it is all his. And that's why God is so offended when people worship someone or, or something other than him. Because if, if, if another person, if another thing is being worshipped instead of God, you're, you're basically putting God at the same level of that created thing. If you're worshipping a material object, you're glorifying something that was made by the creator instead of glorifying the creator himself. And scripture is clear that this is offensive to God. To illustrate that, you know, I, I like my car a lot, and this week I had to take my car in because right in time for summer, the air stopped blowing, um, which isn't so big of a deal here, you know, up in the Pacific Northwest. If I was in Vegas, I'd probably be dead. Um, but, uh, yeah, it, it, the, the air went out, and so I, I brought my car in. But let's say that I went back in to get my car, and they say, oh, we, just, we gave your car to somebody else. Tough luck. I'd be mad. You guys would be mad too. You know, you'd call the cops. You know, you'd maybe even sue them. You know, you'd be mad because that was rightfully yours. You had the right to get the car back for yourself. And I think that anyone in their right mind would be outraged at something like that. But when we worship anything or anyone other than God, we're doing the exact same thing, only a million times worse. It's the exact same principle. In the book of Isaiah, we catch just the slightest glimpse. Just a, just a slight glimpse of God's jealousy for his glory when he says, Isaiah chapter 42, verse 8, he says, I am the Lord, that is my name. I will not give my glory to another, nor my praise to graven images. I will not give my glory to another. It's mine. That's what God's saying there. And the unfortunate truth is that we have all misdirected the glory that God deserves at times. We don't do it constantly. We're here to glorify God. We're here for him and his glory, but we all sin. And when we sin, that means we've redirected the glory that's due to him on ourselves or on something else. We're all guilty of putting it towards someone else or something else, and when we do that, God is rightfully offended and jealous for his glory. So that's the second principle, that God is jealous for his glory. The third principle about God's glory is that his glory is fully revealed through his son, Jesus Christ. His glory is fully revealed in Jesus. The prophet Habakkuk, whose name preachers probably intentionally avoid as much as possible, either because it's kind of weird to pronounce or because it sounds like a sneeze. Uh, Anytime I hear the word Habakkuk, I kind of want to say, Kazuntite. Habakkuk once wrote in chapter 2, verse 14, For the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. You see, this was written a long time before Jesus ever showed up on the earth, when most of the earth's inhabitants recognized that there was a God, but only a very select few, mostly people in the nation of Israel, were consciously aware of the glory of Yahweh, the glory of Jehovah. But Habakkuk, Gesundheit, was was foretelling of a day when all of the nations on the planet would know about the glory of Yahweh of the true God. What was he talking about? He was talking about the day that the gospel message, that Jesus came to die for our sins, to reconcile us with God, that through faith in him, we are reconciled with God. One day, that message would spread to the corners of the earth. 
Now, he wasn't saying that the earth would be filled with God's glory someday. Because it was already filled with God's glory. The earth was already filled with God's glory. Whether people recognize it or not, the whole earth is full of God's glory. But those people didn't recognize it, just like people today don't recognize it. And that's because sin has corrupted their hunger for glorifying God. But the day was coming when the knowledge of God's glory would cover the face of the earth. That's what he's saying here. We would know it. We would experience it. We would participate in it. Glorifying God with all of creation. The Apostle John wrote this in John chapter 1, verse 14. And the Word, he's speaking about Jesus. Jesus is the Word. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we saw his glory. Glory as of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. I think John is actually saying a couple different things here, slightly different things here. First of all, I think that he's referring to the the scene on the Mount of Transfiguration when John and Peter and James uh, go up on the Mount with Jesus and they get surrounded by the Shekinah glory and they run into Elijah and Moses. I think that he's partly uh, referring to that. But John is also saying that they saw the qualities of the one true God in Jesus Grace and truth. The grace and truth of God. They saw those things in Jesus. And for that reason, Jesus is worthy of all praise, honor, and glory. He came and he dwelt among us, is what John says. The cool thing there is, remember what the tabernacle was? The tabernacle was where God's glory was. That's, that's kind of where it was kept in the camp of Israel. The word that John uses here, dwelt, literally means tabernacle. So we would say, if, if we were to translate it that way, the, the word became flesh and tabernacled among us. Kind of cool. That's what he's saying Jesus did. He came and dwelt among us. So now God's glory is fully revealed in and through Jesus. Now you can see it. Now you can touch it. Now you can relate to it. That's the third principle, is that Jesus is the full revelation of God's glory. Fourth and finally... We need to know this. This is, the, this is the important part. We are invited to participate in the glorification of God, following the example set by Jesus, by what we think, by what we say, and by what we do. When we think, say, or do something that advances the kingdom of God on earth, we are participating with all of creation in glorifying God. About 2,000 years ago, Paul wrote this. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 31. He said, whatever you do, whatever you do, do all for the glory of God. Now, before we get ahead of ourselves and assume that that means that God is less glorified if we're disobedient, let me just clarify and say uh, that is not what I'm saying. God is not less glorified if I don't participate or if you don't participate or if anybody else doesn't participate. God is no less glorified if I don't participate in glorifying him. He is fully glorified for now and forever, just like he was before creation, just like he has been through all of eternity. He has been fully glorified forever. And I love the fact that Paul wrote this. Whatever you do, do it for the glory of God. 
because it answers a lot of questions that the Bible doesn't specifically address. I mean, there, there are a lot of questions out there that the Bible doesn't specifically address. And so what we do is we look for a principle that, my, since it's not explicit, we look for a principle that would help us uh, settle on a position. Um, for example, uh, should I listen to Christian music only? Or is it okay if I listen to secular music as well? Whatever you do, do all for the glory of God. What does that mean to you? Are Christians allowed to have tattoos? Whatever you do, do it for the glory of God. As a Christian, should I support the legalization of medical marijuana? Whatever you do, do all for the glory of God. It just answers every question. Paul's words here should cause us to just stop, to to pause, and reflect when we're not sure which course of action we should take or which position we should affirm. Our question should be, what would glorify God the most? Which, which way should I take that would glorify God the most? And listen for the Holy Spirit to give you an answer. And the amazing thing about this is that you can have two people who have opposing views, who settle on opposing positions, and they can both be doing it for the glory of God. And that's because God is glorified most by a heart that longs to please him and follows the convictions of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit can, and sometimes he will, convict two people in in opposite directions based on where they are in their walk with the Lord at any given time. For example, with Christian music. Some people, it'll, it'll be a stumbling block. Other people, it won't be. And the Holy Spirit can convict people in different ways. What the Holy Spirit will not do, what the Holy Spirit will never, ever, ever do is convict an individual to affirm a position which is explicitly revealed in nature. When God's position on a certain action or a certain thing is explicitly revealed in Scripture, the Holy Spirit will never go against that. And so when somebody says, well, you know, I, I think that that was, that was cultural, and so, you know, today this is a normal thing, so the Holy Spirit's leading me to affirm it. No, the Holy Spirit will never contradict what is explicitly revealed in Scripture. God's glory is revealed in all of creation because all of creation is declaring the glory of God. As part of creation, we were designed, we were designed to glorify God as well. Our lives, our thoughts, our words, our deeds, they should all declare the glory of God. And when I say that, I mean that, when we, that what we do and, and how we live ought to direct other persons toward worshiping God. David wrote in another psalm, Ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. Ascribe to the Lord the glory due his name. Worship the Lord in the beauty of holiness. Not his holiness necessarily, just holiness. Lead a holy life. That's what he's saying. That's Psalm chapter 29, verses 1 and 2. See, when God is worshiped, When you live a holy life, God is glorified. So when Paul said that we should glorify God in all that we do, he was saying that we should have a lifestyle which consists of continuous worship in thought, word, and deed. Now I know all the objections here because I have stood in the shoes of the skeptic. I know that someone might respond to this type of thing, that we should constantly be glorifying God by saying something like, well, you know, God sure seems like an egomaniac. God sure seems demanding that we continually glorify him. And the implication there is that God uh, seems like he's, he's needy. He's, he's overly needy. The implication is that God is like a baby who constantly needs to be held 
and nurtured. But what we need to understand, what we need to realize is that worshiping God and glorifying God in our lives, in our thoughts, words, and deeds, all those things should come naturally without any hesitation when we detect or observe his glory. And if his glory is filling the earth, there's no excuse for us not to detect it at any time. It is everywhere. God's glory is everywhere. And the natural reaction is to worship him and glorify him. You know, one of the, one of the neat things about Facebook, you, those of you who follow me on Facebook, you know that I do this all the time. Um, you can instantly share something that's really cool with all of your friends. You can post it as your status. Or you can take a picture, and one, you know, one of my favorite things to do is to take pictures of nature, uh, especially flowers, of all things, uh, because there's just something about a flower that really grips me in a way that makes me want to show everyone I can. And that's exactly how it works with God's glory. When you see it, man, you should say, wow, I, I can't wait to share this with absolutely everybody. I want to share it. If you see it, you want to join with all of creation in declaring it. You want to proclaim it. God is glorious. And his glory is revealed from the top to the bottom of all creation. And you and I have the opportunity to be a part of that. It's the purpose of our existence. Whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. And in the margin of your Bible, if you have your Bibles open to, to that verse, 1 Corinthians 10.31, write Isaiah chapter 43, verse 7. Isaiah chapter 43, verse 7. There we read, Everyone who is called by my name and whom I have created for my glory. Whom I have created for my glory. Whom I have formed. Even whom I have made. Did you catch that? Whom I have made for my glory. That's a purpose statement. He says that his people were created with the purpose of glorifying him. His people are created for his glory. Man, I, I can't think of a higher honor. I mean, you can look at the highest honors on earth, and man, there's, there's nothing that compares. You, get to, you, you were given the opportunity to give glory. You were made to give glory to the God who created it all. Man, that, that's huge. Jesus said this, Matthew chapter 5, verse 16, Let your light shine before men, or before people, in such a way that they may, number one, see your good works. Number two, glorify your Father who is in heaven. That's the purpose of good works. That someone can see it, and they don't give glory to you. You know, they, they don't say, you know, wow, glory to Toby. You know, that's not what they say. They say, wow, glory to God, because they, they, maybe they knew who I was before. Or maybe they just say, wow, you know, people don't act like this. People don't have this type of compassion. People don't have this type of love. People aren't willing to put themselves out on a line like this. Glory to God for what this person has done. That's what Jesus is saying there. The truth is that through us, God's glory can be seen by the world. God's glory can be seen by the world. It can be seen in acts of compassion and kindness. It can be seen in love and selfless humility, things like that. The Bible teaches us that as God's people, we are like clay vessels, uh, jars of clay, if you will, which contain his glory. But this can get confusing because the Bible also teaches, in one of the most famous verses in all the Bible, that all have fallen short. Every single person on the face of the planet has fallen short of the glory of God. That's Romans 3.23. But what Paul's saying there is that everyone has sinned, 
and that sin has depleted us of any glory of our own. Like a vessel that's cracked and can't hold any water, that's, that's a picture of what we are. Remember that there's a close connection between glory and God's holiness. So because sin and holiness are incompatible, and because everyone has sinned and is therefore not holy, therefore we have no glory of our own. Any glory that we hold, any glory that's in us, that we have as vessels of clay, must be God's glory. It's not glory for ourselves. And that's why Jesus said that if we want to follow him, we have to be willing to die to ourselves. We have to be willing to put him first instead of ourselves. You know, people are hungry for glory. People are hungry for it. That's, that's why people lie. People lie because they, they want you to believe something that would bring more glory to them. That's why people cheat. That's why people uh, try to look better than they really are or try to talk like they're more smarter than they really are. Uh, it, it's, it's, why people, it's why people drive cars and own homes that they can't really afford. It's because they want the glory for themselves. They want glory. They're hungry for glory, but it's been misdirected because of sin. It's been misdirected. It should be directed toward God, but it gets turned around and directed toward us, and that's when we sin. And it's natural for people to have this this hunger for glory, but sin has corrupted and defiled our hunger, causing people to direct it onto themselves rather than to God. The Westminster Shorter Catechism asks, what is the chief end of man? In other words, What's our purpose in life? What's the greatest purpose that we have in life? And it answers, man's chief end is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. Starting now. Starting right here on earth. Starting right now. The heart that longs to glorify God alone is is foundational. It's the anchor point of the Christian faith. It's fundamental to the Christian life. If you or I aren't focused on living For the glory of God alone, I guarantee you, we'll miss the mark. We'll miss out on the very purpose that we were created for. The very reason that we exist. On the night that he was betrayed, Jesus prayed one of the most awesome prayers in all of scripture. This is what he said. He's talking to the Father. He says this. He says, as you sent me into the world, I also have sent them, speaking of the disciples, into the world. For their sakes I sanctify myself, that they themselves may also be sanctified in truth. Now he's talking specifically about the disciples in that part, but he's about to broaden the spectrum here, broaden the parameters as he continues by praying, I do not ask on behalf of these alone, but for those also who believe in me through their word, through the word of the disciples, that they may all be one, even as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they may also be in us so that the world may believe that you sent me. Then he says this, the glory which you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one, just as we are one. That's from John chapter 17, verses 18 to 22. The glory which you have given to me, I have given to them. Do you you see how huge that is? The glory of God, the glory that he's so jealous of, has been shared with those who have believed the gospel message. How awesome is that? The glory that he wouldn't share with false gods, the glory that he wouldn't share, he wouldn't give 
not even an ounce of, to idols. He shares freely with us. He shares with us. We're just vessels. The glory that we contain isn't our own. It comes from a source. It comes from God. God didn't give us that glory to keep it for ourselves, however, because it's not ours. The purpose of him giving us a share of his glory is to make it all go back to him, to bring it all back to him. He gave it to us in order that we might join with all of creation in declaring the glory of God through our lives, through our words, through our actions. And the only way to experience God's glory in you is by trusting in his son, Jesus. In him, in Jesus, we will find the source of all glory, the source of all beauty, the source of all splendor, the source of all majesty. The only appropriate responses when we behold this glory in Jesus, fully revealed in Jesus, the only responses are to worship God, proclaiming his glory, and proclaiming it so that others can see it clearly. So that others don't see what you have, but see, wow, God has done this in him. Let your light shine in the darkness so that people are drawn to it and so that they worship and glorify the source of that light, Jesus. Every single aspect, every single aspect of our lives is to be lived for the glory of God. That's our purpose in life. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we are in awe of your glory. God, the the whole earth is filled with it. The universe declares it. Lord, I just, I'm almost speechless when I think about the awesomeness of your glory. And I pray, Lord, that we would understand this. God, I pray that your Holy Spirit would place convictions on our heart. Teach us to live for your glory alone. God, we recognize that that's the purpose of our existence. So teach us to do it. Teach us to do it in a way that other people notice so that they'll be doing the same thing with all of creation, declaring your glory. In Jesus' name. This message has been brought to you by BibleStudyPodcasts.org. We are a listener-supported ministry. If this is your first time listening to us, we thank you so much for joining us and we ask nothing further from you. But if this is a ministry that you rely on for regular spiritual teaching, we do depend on your financial support to keep us going and growing. If you'd like to make a donation to BibleStudyPodcast.org to keep us going and reaching thousands of people around the world, you can go to our website, BibleStudyPodcasts.org, and you can make a donation on the right-hand side by clicking on the support box. Again, we do rely on your support, and we thank you so much for your financial participation in this ministry, which enables us to continue in our mission of teaching timeless truths in these truthless times. God bless you. Thank you so much for listening today, and keep growing closer to Jesus. Take me deeper.
flowers in the springtime open and bloom. It's that moment the sun breaks through a stormy afternoon.